welcome to Authority Issues, a podcast about leadership, management, and how magical it is to get a new glasses prescription. Huzzah. I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pi or Pi Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese, and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller. Sometimes I listen to music by bands I'm ashamed of. Don't we all? Today on the show, we're talking with Sarah Kampman, VP of Products at Square Root. Hi, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> it's yeah, good to have you. Glad you're here. Well, let's jump in and just tell us about your path to leadership management and uh, your VP title, how you got sure. to where you are now. So the path is, as some other folks on your show have said, a little bit unintentional. Um, I like the metaphor of kind of walking through uh, time backwards where you can see everything behind you, but the future is yet unknown. <laughs> and so I started um, 20 years ago in tech communications because when I graduated from school, I was happily near Silicon Valley, but uh, didn't have a computer degree, didn't necessarily know what to be doing. And so I kind of happened into techcom, loved it. Once I was in software companies, realized I really liked the UI and working with users and the requirements. And I had a boss who was a wonderful mentor who said, you know, you're doing the job of product management. Um, and so I, I moved into that in a very kind of sideways, but then super intentional race at it way because it turned out it was the perfect match for what I loved. Um, and so I've played around with product management and technical architecture or in um, uh, UX architecture and R&D and data science since and um, have been really fortunate to be part of a couple of organizations that have grown so dramatically that I was able to hire a team to support me and um, kind of that unintentional growth wise move into leadership. What what got you? So right out of college, you go into communications in tech? What, what did you call it? Techcom? Techcom. Okay. And uh, what was your interests before that? Like, what did you study in college? Were you mostly mowing lawns before that? Like, how did, how did you end up in techcom? How did you end up in tech at all? I guess, was mm -hmm. it just proximity to Silicon Valley? So I think I had an unusual um, tech background for somebody of my generation where kids now grow up with computers everywhere. But in the 80s, that was really not the case. Um, the fact that my father was in educational technology meant that we had a bunch of computers around all the time from the time I was six on. Everything from an Apple IIe to a Tandy to an IBM, the Mac Classic bricks. Um, and I played with them. I didn't program. I just played and they were just a normal part of my life. When the internet came along, that was how I met people outside of my town. I went on uh, internet relay chat and kind of did my initial research for college on like the very earliest web pages. And so for me, technology was just a regular part of life. And so I studied cognitive science in college, uh, which is kind of a combination of philosophy, psychology, artificial intelligence, linguistics, and it kind of gets at the brain and the mind. But alongside of it, I had this just comfort with technology. And so I graduated in 97 with a degree in cognitive science, which was easily 10 years before that had any real meaning to any kind of th any functional paying job. But it was right near Silicon Valley. And so since I had that comfort level with computers, I was able to kind of edge my way sideways into a software company in um, technical editing because I knew language, I was comfortable with computers, and so it was just this great entry-level job. Um, I did later get a chance to use more aspects of the cognitive science degree in working with data scientists, but that literally took years. Oh, talk about that a little bit. What, what aspect of your cognitive science degree did you actually get to use? I mean, I can think of a yeah. variety of things, but... 
that is uh, <laughs> that is unusual. People come, yeah. coming into tech with a different kind of degree and getting to use their their backgrounds anyway. I love that kind of thing. I I was I also got a rare experience that way. So I'm I'm interested to hear how that was. Yeah. So there's there's really kind of two different opportunities that allowed me to use CogSci. Um, one was I was essentially the product manager for an R and D group for several years and was able to work with them hands-on on statistical models, on how do you optimize kind of both the inputs and the outputs for the audience and what they need. Um, we designed research studies together. We worked with a linguist on staff who was doing um, NLP of um, different healthcare data that we had access to. And so all of those kind of played into, you know, kind of different aspects that I'd picked up throughout school. And then also the UX architecture side um, plays into human behavior, kind of the behavioral economics that's kind of taken off in terms of how people make decisions, how they process information, um, how you can structure questions in order to get the answer that you want or to be very intentional about debiasing the way that you get information. Um, and so I found it increasingly I've been able to bring more of those pieces in, but it's taken 20 years um, to do so. And luckily, I still have a passion for it. And so I still do a lot of reading with CogSci and behavioral economics type books. Um, but the linkages always need to be very kind of a sideways intentional link in as opposed to something that, um, that a job or a posting or a task is explicitly requiring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You just merge it into your overall understanding of the work. I imagine that you probably also get to use some aspects of your uh, your background in leading people and managing people and understanding how they, uh, you know, how they experience the world. Um, and Rachel and, and says that background. understanding, but I assume the word is manipulating. <laughs> it's on. a fine line. <laughs> uh, hey, I say use all of the Machiavellian tools at your disposal. No, um, and it, well, and it's interesting to watch people wield those tools on others as well. Like I'm a meeting watcher. And so I like to watch how folks interact in meetings and the way that this person says a thing and then how other people react and just kind of how that spills over. Um, and then being able to use some of the behavioral aspects of, you know, when things are getting out of control, like I'll bring in this quiet, slow tone and kind of calm us down, what I hear you saying. And so it's just, I, there's so many layers to human behavior and processing <laughs> of information and interactions that it's just, it's, it's interesting to, to be around people. Absolutely. Um, have you, so in, in using your background to, to be a leader, to grow in this role, um, what has been the hardest lesson or, or possibly the most embarrassing lesson that you've had to learn on the way to your current role? I think the thing that is maybe the most challenging for me personally is remembering that I don't have to tell people what to do. I just have to show them what is needed and they're going to come up with their own creative ways to do it. Um, I don't know if it's the control freak in me <laughs> that is saying, here's the best way to do this or whether it's just trying to be helpful, which is maybe the better spin on it. Um, but most people perceive it as, you know, neither of those as being particularly positive things. They want to be engaged. They want to come up with their own solutions. Um, and so it, it's kind of, for me, it's a constant reminder to myself of show the, the place that we want to get and let folks find their own path to it and, and support just when needed. So like inspire them uh, mm -hmm. rather than direct. Be, but it's got to just be normal to 
try to tell people like that's that's our default i feel like almost everyone's default and we all have to learn to fight against that right or or are there people out there who would would prefer never tell someone how to do something or never give someone advice on how to do it uh is that is it the male in me coming out that assumes that oh so rich uh, nodding yeah. her head at me yes apparently <laughs> okay so never mind uh, telling people yeah. what to do sucks <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying I, I preferred. I'm saying it's my default. Go ahead, Sarah. I think it's just very individual, you know? And so I think for all of us, it's especially if you've done a thing, it's like, I know the best way to do it. Let me just, let me shortcut it for you. Here's how you should. Um, and for me, that's a very strong urge. <laughs> you know, and I, I, I don't know that it's as strong for everybody else, but it's, you know, I, I really want to make it easy for people. Like, let me, you don't make them, you don't have to make the mistakes that I made. Um, but mm, yeah, they'll make but different that's mistakes. how you learned it. That's yep. how you learned the correct way, really learned it, I think. Absolutely. Well, so is there a specific story, though, that where you told someone to do something and they were like, no, Sarah, stop telling me what to do? Or like, how, yeah. how, did, you, how did you learn that lesson? I'm... It's been an increasing set of lessons for the last 40 years. Um, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's almost every interaction. You know, and especially, you know, kind of the classic product management type interaction is um, I have an idea and I want to bring it to the development team and, you know, and, and I'm thinking, here's how it should work. It should look this way. It, we should move the screens this way. On the back end, we're going to need it architected this way. Let's make sure that it, we can also export it. Here's the performance and kind of all of the different details. And by doing that, it's... I'm a pretty good planner. I can plan something and if executed exactly the way I suggested it, it will be fine, but it will be better if other people can second guess, wait, why is it looking that way? If they can suggest things that I've forgotten, if they can simplify and we can get through it faster because we're not doing the 18 things I suggested. Um, and so I think it's the, the continual um, reminder to be humble that other people have wonderful ideas to bring to the mix and so um do they to kind of space for that, Is that <laughs> really? oh kendall <laughs> I, i'm i'm joking i promise uh no, but to me this sounds like uh the, the similar to the benefits of diversity you get someone else's ideas and experiences mm -hmm. in the mix and even if they're not the way you would have chosen you can benefit from yeah. their understanding their experience of the world totally yep. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's almost giving people an opportunity to do it differently than you would it, like just by ex not explicitly telling them how to do it. Uh, they have potential to both mess it up and do it worse than you, but also to do it better mm -hmm. than you. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the classic kind of studies from um, group uh, group projects have a lot of kind of baggage that carries with them. <laughs> but when you have a group solving a problem, the group will almost always be do better than any individual within it. Simply because you've got these different perspectives, they can bounce off each other and you end up in a better place. Mm -hmm. So how does that apply? I mean, talk to us a little bit about your specific role. Like we've, we've talked kind of generic leadership. What does it mean to be VP of products at Square Root? And then, um, you know, what, what are the specific tasks that you're not assigning to, or you're not telling people how to do? Like what, what are the kinds of things that you're tackling day to day? I have gotten, I will say in the last couple of years, you know, all joking aside, I've gotten a lot better at not trying to do everything myself. Um, one of the lessons that I learned as a new manager was if I keep trying to do all these things, I'm going to be constrained by what it is possible for one person to do. And also I'm going to have a team that's 
bored because I don't get to do anything interesting. And so I've gotten a lot better about that. Um, and so what product may, or what kind of being head of products here means now is there's a team of people who is all bought into the same vision of here's the thing we want to do for our users, for our market, for our company. And because they can tell that same core story of values and goals, they then can be a lot more creative about how we get there and whether it's app-based, whether it's custom um, types of analytics for folks, whether it's literally just a conversation that fixes stuff. Um, and so the product team has been really good about going out and working with users hands-on to figure out what it is they need and the best ways to solve that with the development team. Um, engineering also rolls up to me. And so it has been, quite frankly, a lot easier to be very hands-off in the how because I don't have a background as an engineer. This was a sideways kind of entry in. And so I trust my people. And they make good decisions. I trust them to hold each other accountable for details that are beyond the, the level that I can personally be involved in. And so it means that they've got a lot more autonomy, a lot more ability to work with each other and build a really strong team that is accountable within itself. Um, and to have the creativity to work with that product team to then design stuff and to feel like they're really part of the process and they're not just getting handed requirements from product. Did you have to um, like iterate on this process to some degree or did, did it just sort of work out? I know the team's not super big, but it is, you know, you clearly have these, these two functions at least. Um, how, how, did you, how did you convince them or how did you encourage them to work together? How did that work out? We do two week iterations. And so really it, every iteration is a new shot at it. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say that it's been kind of an increasing bar chart up. There have been, um, you know, backslides. There have been, you know, anytime you spin up either a new project or add new people to the team, there's kind of new dynamics that need to get worked out. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the core values of everybody's got a voice. Um, creativity is valued being scrappy and like how quick can we do something interesting and then get it in front of users and see what they think. Um, those I really reinforce, I've reinforced since day one. And I think those core values you've seen kind of the, the underlying trend within the noise chart has been steadily creeping up with those. And then the noise just reflects kind of then any particular iteration, you know, there might've been communication challenges or a ticket got dropped. Um, but, those are secondary as long as the team is really working together to a common goal. Um, I think that we're achieving the right stuff. Do you do retrospective type stuff to figure out what went wrong or how do you, mm -hmm. how do you improve it each time? Yes, we are very introspective. Um, we do a retro at the end of every iteration. And we also just on a very regular basis, we'll just kind of sit and kind of think through like, how does, how is that working for us? Do we need to do this better? Um, I've got regular one-on-ones with everybody. Mm -hmm. A lot of folks have one-on-ones with each other. And so there's just this whole, we're small enough still to have a very interconnected network of one-on-one -on -one conversations where folks can be really honest with each other. Um, one of the things that I try to encourage as well is a culture of uh, no grudges. So something went wrong once, that's fine. You know, as long as we identify it, can do it different next time, we're going to move on and we're not going to hold on to that. Um, and I think that encourages some openness too, where it's easier to admit a fault if it's not going to be wielded against you later. Yeah, people have faith.
So if, if the, the product people who are talking to customers and coming up with features and where should the product go, th- those people report up to you and engineering reports up to you. I mean, it sounds like the organization is kind of product first. Is that an accurate statement? You're, you're nodding. I'm but, nodding. So We're very product focused. Yes. Uh, okay. So the, so my, my question is I've met organizations that are engineering first, right? The engineers make decisions. What are the features we're going to build? And they go build those features and then they test them through product and find out if that was worthwhile or not. I've seen organizations that are marketing driven, like, hey, we have an event in May. We will release 250 new features. We don't care what those features are. We just need 250 of them so we can announce 250. And then everything is at the mercy of marketing. I've never actually heard of an organization that's product driven. And I, I mean, is that normal? And like, uh, do you feel like it's unusual? I don't, I don't like? think it's that unusual. Um, but you're right. Every, every company kind of has a, a center of gravity. Yeah. Um, and the, the center, there's no one right one. I'm a little biased. I think product is great as a center of gravity, but it has some disadvantages to it. Um, the fact that we are product focused means that we are really, really tight with our users. We know who is using what and why and how they feel about it, what they want to be using instead, what their days look like because we follow them around and that doesn't sound weird. Um, (laughs) We are very custom. We've got a whole group of custom developers who will build exactly what they need. That the custom side doesn't scale as well, but what it means is that we have a really good bead on what folks want. And it means a couple of things. It means that we're not spending time building stuff that they don't want. It means that increasingly we've got folks including the developers who are able to use kind of their informed intuition if you will about what the users want so that as they're thinking through features they're going to immediately be able to fine-tune them for how they're going to actually land with end users um the downside because the other side of the coin what that also means though is that there are some technical architecture and infrastructure projects that are not prioritized to the degree that some engineering would like, that has the potential to come back and bite us in the ass. And so as we do planning for 2019, we need to be extra, extra attentive to that fact and plan those in where ordinarily our inclination would be, no, let's be more user focused. Um, Features, features, features. But, um, and so we need to be more intentional. And so in a way that's, I think a good, um, kind of a good mental exercise to be doing to put ourselves in the shoes of our peers as well and say, you know what, if we don't handle the data pipelining issues, if we don't handle um, some of the underlying server performance issues or some of the scalability, those will be problems for users too. Um, so we're, we're essentially carving out a set of tracks to make sure that we can um, tackle those in parallel to all of the stuff that's going to be more visible too. Yeah, like optimally engineering negotiates with UX, negotiates with product marketing for all of these things. And you, you know, in a, in a perfectly functioning uh, organization that has no communication problems or trust issues whatsoever, everyone gets to, you know, participate in that process. I think smaller companies tend to, I mean, not that there aren't gigantic companies that are very engineering driven, but smaller tech companies in particular tend to be very engineering driven because those are the folks who are, you know, actually putting the code together and they, the, the, the org might not have the money to actually fund a real products leader. It's the technical founder of the company that has, you know, some idea of what's needed. But yeah, eventually 
you, you need to bring someone in like yourself who has a broader idea of how to find out what to do. Uh, timing for that can be really complicated though. When you interview for a VP of product role and were you hired as VP of product or were you promoted? I was. Okay. Yep, I when was hired you, in about 18 months ago. Okay. And when you're interviewing for a VP of product role, do they expect you to come in with a whole bunch of ideas on how to change things? Like, do they expect you to already know the product intimately or is it more about you selling, this is why I'm really good at this process? It's, I have a clear, repeatable, articulated set of processes and a way to learn. Um, I am unlikely to know the particular product and the audience yet, unless it's a consumer product. Um, but how quickly can I get up to speed? Have I demonstrated that before? Um, and do I have the humility to listen for a while and do a learning tour and figure out what is the current state and not simply come in and change things for the sake of it, um, but instead to be able to be um, kind of a very precise driver of change for the things that need it? That's okay. Yeah, that's a great answer. Huh. <laughs> you sound like you're, you know, interviewing someone, Kendall. Well, I mean, it's super interesting to me. I mean, so I work in a services organization, right? And so we're the our product is how we tweak our offerings to be a better service, right? But services are easier to tweak on the fly than a product that has been built and has three years of cruft, right? Like. Mm -hmm. it, uh, if if you're building a video game and someone's like, well, I really want it to be an RPG instead of a first-person shooter, like that's not really a, well, we'll flip the switch and change things. But in a services organization, we can kind of say, well, that was a waste of time, but okay, right? And and go do the other <laughs> We'll thing. build you one. Uh, right. So it's, it's yeah. a little different, but uh, anyways. Well, you also have a connection to your users. Like one key is having your, your folks on the ground with the client be able to communicate their desire back up to whoever's going to be working on the solution. Uh, so, you know, that could be a superpower in a way of a services org if they have really great link between the people on the ground with the client and the people who are doing the work. Well, and it's interesting to me that, you know, you're, you're joking about your personal struggle with not telling people what to do, right? Like, and, and you're, you're good at that now, I'm sure, right? You've, you've learned that lesson a million times, but you're in the position in the organization that's about listening. And uh, I think it's really interesting that those, you have that conflict there. Mm -hmm. uh, Troll freaks are everywhere. I, <laughs> I, I feel the same way. Like, I think there is a right way to do a certain thing based on my experience, but you're, you're not going to get, it's not the same as wanting to tell people what to do also. It's more like, the, you be, it's about being outcome driven, wouldn't you say? Like, I want it to go right and I know it'll go right this way. It's not really about the person doing the work. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, letting go of that is essentially having a lot of trust that mm -hmm. I know it'll work this way. I don't know if your way will work, but let's try it. Yeah, you might get something amazing mm -hmm. out of that. And as, so at this point in the podcast, I typically ask this question and I always think I know the answer. Um, are you an introvert or an extrovert? And how does that affect your work relationships? I will be curious to check with you what you think I was going to say afterwards, but I'm a pretty significant introvert, uh, but I'm not shy. So I'm not the um, shy, retiring type. I mean, I was the Hermione all through school. Oh man, who's up? I know the answer. Um, but... <laughs> Given my preference, I would rather spend all of Sunday in my house, in my pajamas, with a newspaper and cooking and not have oh, to interact yeah. with other human beings at all. 
I am totally with you there. And yes, I, I kind of, I think you and I are quite similar uh, in some ways. And that is one of those ways. Like when you have stuff to talk about, totally no problem. When it's not cocktail party chatter, there's lots of interesting stuff to talk to people about. And that uh, means lots of talking, but. Yeah. And I have actually, I've come to appreciate the dance that is cocktail chatter in that for a lot of people, they need to actually suss out the other person they're talking to. It takes a moment to kind of get in sync and to see, are you my kind of person? If I say this, are you going to react the way I think you are? Um, are you funny? Are you quiet? Um, are you, you know, really active? And the chatter is the best way to kind of remove the content from the equation. So you can talk about the weather <laughs> with half of your brain. And then with the other half, you could be watching this person. You're the puppet master. <laughs> <laughs> you wanna, what happens if I push this button? I'm giving so much insight into how I think and don't know it. <laughs> oh, this is why I'm weird like that in, in, in conversation. I don't know. <laughs> of course I'm making this about me. Um, so to, to pivot back to you, um, let's, so this is authority issues and we like to ask everybody, what, what is your relationship with authority? Uh, how do you feel about having authority over others? And how do you feel about others having authority over you? So my philosophy with this is, um, I am not religious, but I went to a Quaker school for several years and, um, if I was going to be anything, it would probably be Quaker because I like their mindset on a lot of things. And I think their mindset on equality um, was an early influence on how I have continued to think about this, which is we are all the same. Um, and they put it in terms of, you know, we all have a light within us. Um, and they essentially got kicked out of England because they wouldn't bow to the king or to the nobles. Neither did they think they were better than the beggars. And so this notion of absolute equality. And if somebody is an expert on something or should be deferred to, it's because they have the experience and the knowledge that has earned it. Um, and authority doesn't come from just, you know, wielding a title or wielding, um, you know, some sort of rather arbitrary um, sense Some lady of, in a lake gives you a sword. <laughs> watery tart. <laughs> That's right. So, so I've kind of carried that through of, there are things that I know well, and I will speak as an authority on those. And then there are things that I know nothing about, and I will defer to the person who knows the most. Um, but the CEO doesn't necessarily know more than me on everything, and it, I don't necessarily see him or her as better. The brand new intern knows things that I don't, and I don't see them as worse because in other ways they're new, new and inexperienced. Um, so I guess I would consider authority earned, not given, um, and hopefully largely irrelevant. Oh, sure. I mean, that is obviously, I think anyone with, you know, with an intellect can say, you know, that the, the authority isn't inherent in a person uh, just because they are a person. Uh, but I mean, the, you still have to navigate a bunch of weird structural authority setup. And I, I mean, as someone who is, has spent a lot of time doing things like communication and community within a technical um, workplace, I experience a lot of situations where people who aren't experts at what I do think they know better than me what I'm doing. And then that ends up being a whole, you know, and you have to kind of exercise authority in a way that sucks. Like you have to prove, you have to somehow exert authority over that person to make sure the job gets done the right way. Here we are back to, I know how the right way to do this, but in this mm -hmm. case, I really do. 
don't say that to this customer. You will utterly ruin this deal or whatever it is. Um, then you, the, then you can't dispense with the idea of authority being inherent in a person, right? You have to, you have to somehow convince that person to leave you the hell alone to do your job or whatever it is. Have you had that kind of experience and how do you, how do you work through that? Um, not often, but I cultivate a certain amount of um, obliviousness to it. <laughs> That's so smart. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a lot, you know, to, uh, there's a lot kind of we're talking about in the current moment of, you know, women getting interrupted and stuff and that it's, it's objectively true. I generally don't notice when I'm being interrupted, though. I have not tried to pay a lot of attention to keeping track of it. Um, I frankly interrupt plenty on my own, so I, it's a little of a give and take. Because I think if I let it get too far into my head of, are people not giving me the credibility that I um, have earned, then that would become this little death spiral of confidence. Um, so in some respects, it's better to just not pay too close attention. Or if I see a look of, you know, of potentially, uh, you know, you could be read multiple different ways on somebody's face. I'm going to read it in the way that is best for my mind sp space, not the way that maybe is more accurate. So, mm. so I'm going to say back what I heard in this answer and tell me if I have this right. Uh, it's a combination of three things. First is wisdom and understanding who has authority and why and who should. Humility and responding to it appropriately. And then willing obliviousness in, you know, where the circumstances call. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think I think some obliviousness makes a lot of social interactions go better. Um, because I think in retrospect, if somebody was thinking about it, they wouldn't have wanted to be, you know, offensive or um, or dismissive or you know or any of the negative things. And so, letting some of it pass, kind of picking your battles, is um, it's again a lesson that's taken me a long time to learn. Um, but it makes things go smoother if you kind of give folks the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, that that idea of assuming people have the best, their you know the best in mind, have their best interests in mind, your best interests in mind, uh, works well in that regard. I mean, that's not always the wisest choice, but I think you're right that it it at least smooths things over. And sometimes you just have to eventually you know, suck it up and tell this person, just, just get off right now, just just get mm -hmm. off my cloud immediately because you do not know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But um, migrate to that's not always useful. Yeah. And I've had that conversation with somebody. So in as much as I've ignored a lot of the, you know, the minor slights, sometimes they build up and you have to do something about it. You have to say it. And so, you know, I've had that conversation where I pulled, you know, one of the DBAs aside. I was like, you might not realize this, but you interrupt me almost every time I talk and it's hurting my feelings. Could you stop? And he, he was so surprised and he didn't realize it wasn't intentional. Um, and he was so apologetic and he said, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I'd been doing that. I will try not to do that anymore. And he made a really concerted effort not to. And so by letting it pass as long as I could, then just simply confronting in a non-judgmental and non-emotional way, um, it just, it, it made it kind of a non-issue that ended up resolving itself. Um, and that's basically the approach I like to take with, with a mm. lot of what could be kind of potential slights and misunderstandings confrontations that take up a lot of time yeah, mm -hmm. yeah if only yeah. human relationships were easy jobs would be a lot more fun mm. um do you do you feel like you have a different relationship with authority than you did when you were a kid um i am more in charge now which is kind of nice um <laughs> <laughs> hell yeah 
<laughs> yeah. Well, for, I mean, those, for those who can't see the video, there was a there was a very good smirk on your face. So, <laughs> sorry. So high vibes. I didn't like being a kid. Um, you know, people talk about like, oh, if only they could go back to childhood and there's all this nostalgia. And I didn't really like it in a lot of ways because you don't you have no control. Um, you're stuck in whatever school town situations you're in and you don't get to escape them. Um, and so for me, power and authority in its first and primary way means authority over my own life and my own choices. If I don't like a job, I can leave it. If I don't like my house, I can move. If I don't like my town, I can go to a different place. Um, and all of those are things that only come with adulthood. And so that's the, that's like the 80% of awesomeness of what being an adult is for me. Um, and then at work, being able to then kind of reuse and share and syndicate out some of the knowledge that I've built in a way that folks, they come to me and they're like, hey, I think you'd have a good opinion on this. It's like, that's, that's a really nice feeling. It's, um, it's a nice validation of kind of the experience and some of the hard learnings that I have done over the years. Mm-hmm. And it sounds as though uh, becoming a leader and, and having these positions of leadership um, over time have uh, positively, positively affected your personal life. Is that how you see it? Has it uh, been a negative experience? How does leadership affect your personal life? Yeah, it's huh? okay. Let's unpack that. <laughs> What's complicated <laughs> about that? Um, yeah, wow. Okay, so let me think about that. Let me think about how to, how to kind of answer. So I think that I think it's true for men too, but I think for women in very particular, the partner you have in life can have a very big influence on the kind of work, the ways in which work spills over, um, the kind of mindset that you can bring to things. And that's been a challenge at various points. Um, I'm now kind of in a time and a place where I'm super supported, um, where I feel like there is a good balance among things, but that's been really challenging at various points. Um, and just in talking with various friends and coworkers over the years, I think more women struggle with that because we try to balance things more evenly so that everybody's happy. Um, and I think there is a more of an expectation for men who have a female partner to, that it, an imbalance is, what they both go in expecting. Um, and so just the mismatch of expectations and reality as it unfolds over time um, can come to, come to some real pressure points. As you're, as you're moving up and taking on more responsibility, um, there's, a, there's a personal impact, especially if there's not an expectation that you're going to make the sacrifices required to move up and, and have more influence. Yeah. I mean, everything from hours at work to how long is this commute going to be? Are we going to move to be closer to work? Um, travel schedules, travel is really tricky for me. Um, but then also as you gain more authority at work, you also have a different, a different level of confidence and persona as you get older. And, um, and I probably started in a very unconfident place. And so it was a much bigger shift as I have, you know, grown through adulthood. And, um, yeah, each of those was kind of its own set of growing pains, both for me as well as the people around me. Yeah, yeah. I imagine that if you um, have had the same partner for a long time and you changing and, and becoming more assertive and, and aware of your own value and your, your you know, right to an opinion and say in what's going on around the house, 
like that kind of thing can be really hard. Uh, you're getting your, you know, getting your um, viewpoint attended to and your, uh, your outlet at work. And if it's not happening at home, I'm sure that could be really complicated yeah. uh, and, and stressful. Yeah. And then there's just realities of travel of like, oh, I've got a last minute trip and I don't know when I'm going to be home and all of this. And it's just, uh, it's a lot. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And the the kind of gender roles that are uh, still happening in, in people's homes uh, pretty consistently, I think, make all that kind of thing super complicated as well. So yeah, it does. Definitely understand that feeling. Yeah. So, so then in the midst of all that, <laughs> what are your hobbies outside of work? Is there um, time for hobbies? Yeah, no, there's always time for hobbies. Um, I love to cook and I make an effort to cook almost every single day. Um, and I'll also cook ahead on weekends. So like my favorite thing to do on Sundays is just to like be in the kitchen for five hours making all these complicated things. Um, I like to quilt. And I think that that's kind of the counterpart to playing with software. So software is nebulous and long-term and playing with a quilt is playing with physical pieces of color and it comes together into a real thing in a short period of time. Um, okay. So there's something really satisfying about that. It only be so big also, like <laughs> what's out of scope <laughs> for a quilt. I have yeah. made too many king size quilts, so <laughs> possibly there's some scope creep going on. But you probably um, never make a quilt four times the size of a king size quilt. <laughs> now, now I want one of those. Fold no. it over every time it gets colder. <laughs> Another um, layer. And I also just read a lot. Like I read a lot, a lot. We're having a reading contest at work and I'm blowing that sucker out of the water. What, what, oh, competitive reading. That's what, <laughs> are you reading, um, I don't know, people's PhD theses or all fantasy all the time? What's your, what's your poison? I am a book eater. And actually, and that's the word in Spanish even. It's come libros, which is awesome. It's like literally a book eater. Um, and I like everything from mysteries to pop science to more serious science to um, thrillers to history to uh, fantasy to, I mean, to you name it. Oh, and if money were no object, what would you be doing with your life right now? Would you be doing something very different? Wait, I, I want to posit a guess. I'm thinking it's a combination of the cooking and the book eating. So it's edible. <laughs> Right. That would be pretty fantastic. Um, I'm not coming to your restaurant. I'm sorry. <laughs> if I had a restaurant, the walls would be lined with books. It would be the restaurant where you can come alone and you can sit at a table and you can just read your book. Um, no, what would I be doing? I mean, I'll say something probably a lot like this. I love what I'm doing. I, I literally can't imagine doing anything else than being a product of a software company. Um, I love the creativity. I love the playing with technology. I love working with users to solve problems. Um, and so I might do it on a part-time basis so that I can travel a lot, but I would probably still find my way into something like this. Oh, all right. Cool. And um, where can people find you on the internet? Um, LinkedIn. I am one of a handful of Sarah Campmans out there, but I'm the Sarah Campman who's at Square Root. Oh, and a Campman with a K. With a K, yes. We will have that in the show notes. Don't worry. Well, awesome. It's been lovely chatting with you today. Thank Likewise. you so much for your time. Yeah, thank, thank you. you.